So I thought I would share with you the joke of the day from my desk calendar. What do you get when an agnostic suffers from both dyslexia and insomnia? A person who lies awake at night wondering whether there is a dog. So, there you go. You can be the judge as to whether that's a corny joke or not. Our topic today is the Bible is our map. You've seen it across the side of, the, of our worship center, um, and we're going to be exploring that. I know you've been exploring it this week in your Bible study as you've been preparing. Um, and so I thought I would start us off with a map, one of my favorite maps. Uh, this is a map that was created by Henri Hondius, a Dutch cartographer from the 17th century, and he published this in 1641. I actually have a copy, we have a copy of this hanging in our, in our den. And there are a couple things I like about this map. If, I, I don't know how well you can see the detail of it, but in the upper uh, left corner, you have a picture of Julius Caesar. Now, why Julius Caesar in the corner of your map? Well, Julius Caesar was actually one of the first people to commission a map of the world. He commissioned four cartographers of his day to create a map of the world. Obviously, he had been a conqueror. He was the emperor of Rome. He wanted a map of the world. Unfortunately, that map did not survive. So we don't know what that map looked like. But there is a record that Julius Caesar commissioned such a map. In the upper right hand corner, you have Claudius Ptolemaeus, or Ptolemy as he's better known. And if you know about Ptolemy, you know that he mapped the heavens. In fact, it was his navigational system that he developed in the second century that served up until the modern times when we've been able to use GPS and such. His, his navigational system, based on the location of the stars, made all the difference in the world of exploration and the world of shipping. Down in the lower left corner, you have Herodes Mercator. He was a Dutch cartographer from a century earlier than Hondius. Uh, Mercator, you probably recognize that name when it comes to maps. He's the one who came up with the idea of projecting maps with straight lines in the, in the direction in which they were going. So all lines going north and south were straight up and down. All lines going east and west were straight across. It, it allowed him to project the whole globe on one page. And obviously it, it distorts things because those areas that are at the top end up being appearing much larger or, or at the bottom end up appearing much larger than they really are. But he, was, he, he revolutionized map making by coming up with this new way of projecting the, the directions on the map. And then in the lower right corner you have our friend Hondius. So he puts himself in very good company. I don't think anyone today would recognize him as being in the same league as the other three, but, but that's how he saw himself. There are a couple other things that I like about this map. Uh, although it's probably difficult for you to see, the lower section of the, the sphere on the left side, actually it's on both sides, it says Terra Australis Incognita. How's your Latin? 
Terra Australis Incognita. Southern Unknown Lands. Yeah, Southern Unknown Lands. It's, he didn't know what was there. They hadn't explored Antarctica at that point. And so he just left it kind of blank and said, well, there's some, we think there's something down there. The other thing that I really like is if you can see it on the left globe, if you look at where California is, it appears as an island. And as a native Pacific Northwesterner, that really resonates with me. I think of California as kind of an island of, of its own. Um, many, I, I think many, in the, in the, uh, many Americans would agree with that view that Hondias had, that it was... Uh, a set. Obviously, in 1641, there hadn't been that much exploration on the west coast of North America. And so he was doing the best he could, but that was... He, he figured that that Baja Peninsula probably just made a big island and didn't know all the details. What the map does is it shows us the perception of a particular cartographer at a given time in history. And it shows us that his understanding of the world was somewhat limited. It, it's, it, it's actually quite accurate when it comes to Africa and Europe. And by that time, the Dutch had explored much of the coastline of Africa in their trips around Africa to get to the East Indies. And obviously, being from Europe and being located in Europe, that part he, ha he got down pretty well. The rest of it, not quite so much. Let me show you another map. How does this one strike you? We, we tend to think of north as up, right? But why? What makes north up any more than south could be considered up? It's a globe. I mean, up is actually that way. It's not north or south. So someone suggested, well, we should just turn the whole thing around and look at it in a different way. And suddenly it, it looks much different, doesn't it? We see a... a, a map of the world that's largely empty on top instead of mostly full on top. And suddenly we realize, well, things do look a bit different. Again, this map was, was created to project a certain picture of the world. And, and that's the point I'm trying to make. Maps are given to us, maps are created to give us a particular perspective on the world. And so as we think about the Bible as a map, I want us to keep that in mind because even the Bible comes with a particular perspective, comes within a particular context. And we need to appreciate that context in order to understand it and understand the value of the Bible as a map. If, uh, just going to the next slide, I've made that point here. Maps always reflect a particular perspective, but they also serve multiple purposes. They show us where we are, providing that they're a map of our location. They identify boundaries for us. They're useful for identifying political spheres of authority, whether that's a nation, or in our case, a state, or a county, or the San Gabriel Valley, or Glendora. 
or even a neighborhood within Glendora. They also show us how to get somewhere else. And depending on the, the scope of the map, there may or may not be enough detail for us to actually make that journey. Um, if we're looking at a, if we want to know how to get from here to LAX, we need a fairly detailed map of the freeways in Southern California. Uh, if, if the map we have is simply a map of the United States, we probably won't be able to make that kind of journey, right? Because it's at too high a level. And similarly, if we have a map of just Los Angeles County, it's not going to help us getting to Washington, D.C. So the maps are there to help us get somewhere else, provided that they give us the, the full picture. The Bible helps us also see the world as God's world. That's one of the functions that it serves as a map. It identifies boundaries of behavior, I would suggest, in order for us to live according to God's creation and redemption purpose for us. That is, it shows us what God expects of us. It shows us how we're to behave as the people of God. But we also need to recognize that the Bible reflects a particular context, including a specific relationship between God and his people. So as we look at the the scripture passage that you've been reviewing and studying this week, we need to keep in mind that 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 reflects a particular point in God's history with his people Israel. And then once we understand it within its context, hopefully we can draw lessons from that for our own context. Let's take a look at Exodus chapter 20. This chapter, just to set it in its context, this chapter is the focal point of Israel's exodus from Egypt. As As the book of Exodus opens, Israel is in bondage and slavery in Egypt, and a baby is born, the baby Moses. And the early chapters of Exodus tell us about the journey of this young boy and eventually man's life and how God calls him out of his circumstances to be his, his deliverer for the nation of Israel. They were specifically, the Israelites were specifically delivered from Egypt in order to worship the Lord. Remember when Moses went to Pharaoh, the request was, let us go so that we can worship God at his, in, in the way that he has, has told us that we should do. God prepared them for this encounter at Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, um, with the encounter with him in his awesome holiness. He prepared them for it by setting certain boundaries and saying, okay, I'm going to appear to you on this mountain. Everybody else should stay off the mountain. Moses alone is able to come onto the mountain and um, be be ready. (laughs) Be ready to see my, my awesome glory. One of the things we find as we study this chapter and compare it to other ancient writings is that it follows a particular form, and that form is what I've called here a suzerainty treaty. Now, that's a word you're probably not familiar with, but a suzerain 
was a, a, a specific kind of ruler in the ancient Near East. And a suzerainty treaty then was a treaty that that kind of ruler, a suzerain, would, would create for the people, usually the people that he had conquered, sometimes referred to as his vassals. So you have a suzerain on the one side and the vassals, all the people that he had conquered. And there was generally a treaty that was imposed almost by the suzerain onto the vassals. Okay, if you don't want to be destroyed like I destroyed all those other people, this is what you're going to do. This is how we're going to work together, live together. This is a specific form of a covenant, uh, a, a covenant treaty, a covenant relationship, um, which continues the theme of the Lord being a covenant-making God. That's something we see throughout the Old Testament. And as we come here now to Exodus, it's, it's reinforcing that idea that God is, our God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And this is the particular covenant that he has called the people to enter into. As we look at um, just some of the elements of a typical suzerainty treaty, I think it's helpful for us to see this, just to see the connections between Exodus 20 and what that, those treaties look like. So they would generally start out with a preamble that introduced the parties. Here's the, va- here's the suzerain, here's, here are the vassals. Here's who they are. The prologue recounts the deeds done by the suzerain. Usually it's, I spared your life, or you know, I conquered your land or something of that nature. And then there are stipulations, and the stipulations are simply an explanation of the terms that are to be upheld by the vassals. What is it that they're to do? Uh, Fourthly, there's usually a provision for annual public reading of the treaty. There's also a divine witness to the treaty quite often. Um, There are blessings and curses And then there's also often a sacrificial meal. Now, not all of these elements were part of every suzerainty treaty, but I think as we look at Exodus 20, we'll see there are actually quite a few parallels. The giving of the law at Sinai incorporates some of these components. So we have a preamble. I am Yahweh, your God, or the Lord, your God. In the prologue, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So he's identified, So we have, first of all, the identification of the parties, and then we have an explanation or a, a brief statement of what Yahweh had done for his people. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. The stipulations are the commandments that we find here. Uh, the provision for public reading is not found here in Exodus 20, but we do find it in Deuteronomy where the people were to stand on the two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and they were to read the, the, uh, the law to the people, and they were to pronounce blessings and curses from these two mountains. Um, if we read from, uh, if we uh, look at Deuteronomy chapter 11, beginning in verse 26, um, we find Moses having written... Um, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn away from 
uh, turn from the way that I am commanding you today to follow other gods that you have not known. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land that you are entering to occupy, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. As you know, they are beyond the Jordan, some distance to the west, in the land of the Canaanites, who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the Oak of Moreh. So, even before Moses went in, or before the people of Israel went into the land of Canaan, Moses had instructed them, when you get into the land, you're to read the blessings and the curses from these two mountains. As a reminder of the covenant, as a reminder of this treaty that God has entered into with his people. As we think about the specific um, ways in which this covenant functions as a map, uh, the covenant with Israel um, does a couple things for uh, explaining the relationship between, um, between Yahweh and Israel. It reminds them who they are in relation to the Lord. They are the people whom he delivered from Egypt. That's, that's their identity. They are former slaves. <laughs> you can think of it that way. That, that's part of their identity. They, they are those whom God delivered from Egypt. Um, obviously, their story goes back a lot further than that, and so they are the children of Abraham, if we go back further. But in the immediate context, they are the ones whom God has delivered from bondage. Secondly, it confirms the Lord's authority over Israel because he is their deliverer and they owe their very existence to him. And then finally, it establishes boundaries of behavior for Israel as God's covenant people. Essentially, God's saying, if you're going to live in a covenant relationship with me, this is what I expect from you. This is how you should live. These are the things that you should, should do. And we'll take a look at some of the details of that. Um, the, the Ten Commandments here are often referred to as the Decalogue, the Ten, ten Laws. Um, and they clarify Israel's responsibilities in their relationship with the Lord and in relationship with one another. The first four commandments, as I'm sure you've observed in your own study, focus on how to worship the Lord. And they begin with, you shall have no other gods before me. Stop and think about that one for a moment. You shall have no other gods before me. What is God calling his people to do? He's really calling them to loyalty, to faithfulness, to this covenant relationship. This one is not quite as outward as many of the others are. You shall have no other gods before me. It's looking at their hearts and saying, your heart should be fully devoted to me. Secondly, he says, make no images. Why would that be the case? Why would God not want people, his people, to make images of him? Any suggestions? They don't know what he looks like. Yeah, there's a good one. God, is not, God does not have a physical body. So what, what can you make that adequately represents God? that adequately depicts the awesomeness of God. And as the people experienced, when God actually came down on Mount Sinai, it, it, 
it was an awesome, terrifying experience. Ter- terrifyingly awesome experience. I mean, we think of awesome as good, but this was one of those awesome, you know, knees-shaking, um, watch-out type of experiences. Why else would God not want people to create any images? Pardon? He's not limited. He's not limited. Yeah, any kind of image will tend to contain God. So later in Exodus, when Moses is up on the mountain, chapter 32, right? And, and the people get restless and Aaron says, okay, well, give me all your gold. And later he explains it to Moses by saying, well, I put it all in the, in the fire and out pops this calf. Um, I don't think it quite happened that way, but that was his attempt to avoid culpability in, the, in this uh, event. The, the calf image was a common image of deities in the ancient Near East. And so God is saying, no, I'm not like that. Because as soon as you make an image of a calf, you're, you're associating me with all those other deities. And I'm not like them. I'm not like Baal the God of the Canaanites, who is also represented by a calf or a bull. So it's, it's an unfair comparison. Let me suggest one other reason why God would not want us to make any images of him. He created us in his image. In a sense, he's already created the image. And he says, anything you do is not going to be adequate. You yourselves are a reflection of who I am. You yourselves were created in my image. And so by, by making other images, you're actually, you're actually doing a disservice to yourself. And you're saying, I cannot reflect God as God created me to do. I cannot reflect God as well as this image of some object, some other creature, some other thing. So there are several reasons why he would say, do not make any images. He also says, use the Lord's name respectfully. Do not use it in vain. Now, the, the Jewish people took this quite literally and quite seriously. And I think you, you may be aware that the, the name I used earlier, Yahweh, which is thought to be probably the best way to vocalize the the consonants that, that are part of that name that God gave to Moses in the burning bush, which is often translated or, or taken to mean, I am who I am. That that, that name, Jew, the Jewish people stopped saying. Um, years ago, when I was in college, I took a, a Hebrew class. And the, the professor for the class was a lovely Jewish uh, doctor, a woman who had been teaching Hebrew to students for many years. And one of the first things she taught us in the class was when we read the Bible together, read the Old Testament together, whenever you come to this word, the word that we would say is Yahweh, you're to read Adonai, which means Lord, instead. You recognize the word, but you, you never say it. You only say Adonai. And that was the practice of Jews down through the centuries. They, they stopped saying that word and said, and, and 
substituted in his place the word for, for Lord, which is why our English translations use Lord in all caps when they come to that name, Yahweh. That's why we don't use the word Yahweh even in our English Bibles. We use Lord in all caps, which is distinguished from Lord in normal case, which is the word Adonai. And so that was, that was what the Jewish people did as a way of showing respect for the divine name. They, they said Lord instead. Now I don't, think there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with us using the name that God himself gave us, Yahweh. Um, but, but I appreciate the, the tremendous respect that, our, that, that Jewish people over the centuries have had for the name of God. The fourth of the four command, first four commandments that focus on how to worship the Lord is to observe the Sabbath by resting as the Lord rested. To set aside time to rest just as God rested. When we come to the next six commandments, we find that they, they focus not so much on our relationship with God, but rather our relationship with others. So honor your father and mother. Uh, I think we sometimes forget that this commandment was given to adults, not primarily to children. We like to quote it to our children, right? <laughs> Don't forget, honor your father and mother. Um, but it was actually given to the people of Israel, the, the, the nation of Israel. And it's looking more at how they care for their elders than the relationship between a child and a parent, a, a young child and a parent. And as you can imagine, for a people who started out their nationhood, if you will, as a nomadic people living in tents and having to travel distances, caring for the elder, elderly was important. Making sure that they were not left behind, that they were not seen as unworthy of the, the kind of care and attention that the rest of the, that the strong and the able were given. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. It's interesting that those four still form pretty much a, a foundation for, for civil government, civil law within our society. Even if we allow, uh, even if we overlook certain forms of these things, <laughs> even if you know, as even if adultery is not a, a punishable crime, put it that way, it, it's not viewed in the same way as it was by Israel. Um, it still form, is part of the fabric of our society that we have expectations around that commandment. The last one: you shall not covet your neighbor's possessions again, goes back to the heart. It's, it's a lot harder to measure that one outwardly. How do I know when I'm coveting? Well, it's, it's really more about my attitudes than it is about my action necessarily. That attitude might result in one of those other actions. It might result in stealing if I'm coveting. But the coveting gets at the heart of the matter. And so we have, over the course of these Ten Commandments, if you will, two 
commandments that deal with the issues of the heart that bracket the other eight in between. The first one about a heart that is loyal and faithful to Yahweh. And the last one that's really about is dealing with the heart issue of how I relate to the people around me. Jesus summed up this section of the Decalogue when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. But that was really just a quotation from the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 says the same thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Jesus also summed it up in Matthew chapter 7 uh, verse 12 when he said, so in everything do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. There's a slight twist on that. Do to others before they do to you. That's not what Jesus said. He said, do to others as you would have them do to you. And, that, and I think we can see that that summarizes all these other things. It, we would not want someone to murder us. We would not some, want someone to murder our, a loved one and our, our family. We would not want someone to steal from us, etc. So if we follow Jesus command to to do to others as we would have them do to us we are fulfilling this section of the law uh, let's we've got a couple more slides left um, Jesus summary of the whole law in Matthew 27 excuse me 22 verses 37 to 40 still applies to us today When he was questioned, what is the greatest commandment? His response was, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And if you think about it, that really summarizes those first four commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So as we think about this, this uh, section of Scripture, the, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, serving as a map, um, we recognize that it was a part of a covenant relationship between God and Israel that was established more than 3,000 years ago. And it was at a specific time and place. It was for them to be a nation, to be a people of God in the land of Canaan the land that became the land of Israel. When we come to the New Testament, we find that, that Jesus has, that, that through Christ's death on the cross, through Jesus' death on the cross, we've been set free from the obligations of the law under which Israel was placed. And yet, as a covenant, it still reminds us, it still serves, if you will, as a map for us. It reminds us of what God wants for us. It reminds us of who we are in relation to God, Although the covenant is different, we're now under the new covenant, and so we're still God's covenant people. That part remains the same. It also confirms the Lord's authority over us, just as Israel, just as as God was Israel's deliverer, so God is our deliverer through Christ, and we owe our existence to him. And I would suggest it also establishes boundaries of behavior for us as God's people. It shows us how we ought to live. It answers the question, how then 
ought we to live? We think of the rest of the Bible, not just this one passage in Exodus chapter 20. The rest of the Bible also serves as a map for us in, in many ways, in, in the same way as this passage. The rest of the Bible clarifies who we are and what our purpose is, especially in relation to God. We're not only created in God's image, but we are those who have been purchased by God, redeemed by God. It points out our rebellion against God. Paul states it well in Romans, where he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're part of that all. We fit into that same category. We all have turned away in our own ways. It also reminds us that we have been bought with a price and that we belong to God. That price for us as Christians was, was the death of Christ. For Israel, that price, in a sense, was the death of the, the, death of the sacrificial lamb that was slaughtered at Passover. That was the price, if you will, for their deliverance from Egypt. And then finally, it shows us what authentic, God-honoring behavior looks like. The whole of the Bible does that, not just this one passage. Um, I'd like to suggest that God's map, if we think of it that way, does not show us all the details of the way before us. The potholes, the detours, the sections that are under construction... We don't always see those when we look at the Bible, right? We see instead the big picture. And we see the direction in which we should be heading. It provides for us warnings that help us understand when we have gotten off the path. And it helps us to find our way again when we are lost. And really that's one of the key functions of a map. Help us to find our way. And the Bible does that. We will not always agree on how to interpret the Bible. That's a given. Um, but I think collectively, as we listen to one another, as we listen to the Spirit within us, the Spirit of God who illuminates our minds, who instructs us, we're able to trust that God will guide us through this map that he's given to us. To switch metaphors for just a moment, I, I think the same thing is being said in Psalm 119, verse 105, where the psalmist writes, Your word is a light, a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. And essentially, that's what the Bible is for us. It's that which gives us, a, it clarifies for us the direction we need to be going, helps us to see both how to get there and, how, and when we've gone off the path and then helps us to find our way back to God. Let me just pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity you've given us this morning to reflect on your word and on the value that it is to us as, a, as that which can guide us in life. I pray that you would continue to 
Help us to see you more clearly as we read your word and help us to see who we are in relation to you and help us to see those things that you would have us to do and the kind of people that you would have us to be. We ask these things that ultimately you might be honored and glorified in all that we do and say. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.